As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Let me just toss a shirt on real quick. It is Thursday, which means it's time for the Front 3 Q&A podcast with me, Adam Bolt, with the one and only Chris Hennage. Evening. Evening. Uh, Lawrence McKenna is here as well. Hello. As is Nico Morales with a shirt on, I believe. A shirt on. A shirt is on now. So. That is good to know. Uh, guys, we are here to A, your cues. Does that make sense? Yeah, just about. Yeah. Um, but before we get into that, some very good questions coming up. As always, it's time for Hold of the Week. You've been sending in your reviews on iTunes. If you want to be Hold of the Week, all you have to do is click the link in the description of this podcast, rate and review the front free to be in with your chance to win uh, a six-pack of Ferrero Rocher. Uh, a high honour, I'm sure you all agree. Uh, a couple in contention. We actually have six new reviews. Uh, I'm going to read out a couple and, uh, and Nico can uh, choose the winner. Uh, we've got one here which is actually a rare three-star review. Uh, it's simply entitled, eh, by Aaron from the USA. He says, uh, no one is overly entertaining. Chris and Adam are the soft-spoken people, uh, two of the most soft-spoken people on the planet, and they fill their show with as many topics as possible to fill the void. They also boost their ratings by only reading five-star reviews on the show, encouraging people to write five-star reviews to try and get on the show instead of being dead honest. This being said, they are quite knowledgeable when it comes to football. So, uh, yeah, that was Aaron's three-star review. Thank you very much for that. Three stars. Three stars. You know, honest opinion. You know, he, he See, Aaron, love we it. read it. That's fair it. enough. That's fair enough. You know, that, that is his opinion. He's entitled to it. So, Aaron, sure thank you for your opinion. I've also got one here from The Trophy Lover from the USA, a five-star review. A great podcast, he says. This podcast always gives exceptional analysis of the most important matches that week. All individuals are great and give something unique to the podcasting environment. As a supporter of Manchester United, I love Dave. He always gives the best analysis and allows any, <laughs> <laughs> any average listener to understand the tactics used in the game. Adam and Chris give a great perspective on their mid-table teams. Brilliant. And he also admires how Nico never backs down from a statement and supports it with facts and stats. It's great also to see her a Hispanic working with gringos. 
Uh, fair enough. Uh, Lawrence is the goat. He has a great sense of humor and gets the credit for helping me find the podcast in brackets, TG Podcast. I always look forward to listening to keep up the great work, guys. Cheers from Los Angeles, California. Uh, I think we What's have to, a goat gringo, eh, guys? What's a goat who gringo? Who knows? But I think we have to give it to the trophy lover here. As much as I appreciate the honesty of Aaron, the freestyle review, it's got to be the trophy lover for his maybe casual racism, gone. also some kind words, also some mid-table banter about Spurs. Should we give it to the trophy lover, Nico? You're, you're, you're on board with that? I, I like the second one. There were um, very kind five-star reviews as well from Jim Joes, uh, Joshy B1304 from the UK, Cam uh, G from the UK as well, and uh, Soupy Dan. Which is uh, a fantastic name. Those are all wasted and dead now. They'll never well, get they're fantastic reviews. They've wasted a five-star review. They're in contention, but I think the best ones, you know, the three-star reviews sound a little bit different. The five-star review, it gave some great points. It gave some interesting bit of banter, etc. So we're going to give it to the trophy lover. So do slide into those DMs if you want those Ferrero Rochers. Right, guys, let's get into the questions without further ado. Some great questions coming in on Twitter today. Uh, there's actually quite a few Andrea Perlo themed questions the italian legend retiring this week officially after playing his final game for nyc fc brandon westside writing in to say since perlo is now retired who should be nyc fc's third designated player um how how did perlo's time end at nyc chris uh it ended with a substitute appearance in a a, a victory on the night, but overall an aggregate loss to Columbus Crew in in the playoffs. Um, his time, I think, he managed to show little because of his quality, um, but I think overall it was perhaps a bad fit for a player in a a league that that don't necessarily mesh well with each other. Um, I think in terms of replacing him, it's a difficult one. Um, because they've got David Villa, um, Maxi Morales in, in central midfield, who is good. So at that point, maybe you start to look back to central defence or maybe even another attacker to try and lighten the load off, um, off Villa. The, the thing I, I think is starting to become a little bit of a theme is, is teams are looking for young South American talent um, as their DP option. You look at Miguel Almiron. Uh, Jose Martinez is another good example and LAFC uh, just signed a, a chap whose name is escaping me or that it looks as if they're going to sign someone sorry from uh, I think it's Uruguayan football uh, a striker Bob Bradley uh, yeah he's he's already signed sealed delivered so I think I think that's one of those things where they'll have to to decide which position they want to fill first and honestly it's not an obvious at least in my mind it's not an obvious um sort of decision to make because mm. I think they've managed to build a, a good bit of strength right around the squad. Gary Goals says, who is cooler, Perlo or Alonso? Not really a question, is it? I mean, the answer, we already know the answer is Javi Alonso. It's the answer to every question. We genuinely did a quiz the other night and uh, one of the answers was Javi uh, Alonso, which made my night. So It was, yeah, it was perfect. Um, yeah, I think it's a lot, it's, it's Javi Alonso. It's got to be Javi Alonso. Um, Nick Saldivia writes in as well saying, where does Perlo stand in relation to the all-time Italian greats? Uh, what do you reckon, Nico? A lot of competition. I think he's definitely, uh, he's definitely up there. Um, as far as the greatest, I'm not sure that might continue to belong to, to Del Piero or, or um, 
you know, maybe even Buffon, considering his consistency across his con- entire career, uh, and even now. But, you know, he's definitely, you know, on sort of the Mount Rushmore of, of greatest Italian players, or, you know, he's on an Italian mountain of great players. An Italian mountain, yeah. You've got Maldini as well, of course. Uh, Baresi, it's difficult to think. Cavara. It, it's, I mean, they're all players who, in many ways, define the that or have, have come to define that position in a very um, domineering way. So people have based their game around those people and we still talk about those guys. And I think that definitely says something about Pirlo as a player. As a lot of young players nowadays look to um, emulate elements of his game. I don't, I'm not sure 100% if that position really still exists um, in the same way as Pirlo has played it, obviously. Um, you don't think so? Because I think, I think probably the probably the best thing about him was the way in which he reinvented himself towards the latter stages of his career. I think you're right in saying that, you know, in his time in Milan, probably that midfield world doesn't exist anymore because of the way the, the game is played now. But I think the best thing about watching him uh, in his time at Juventus was the way that he could just ultimately circumvent players in the midfield by just, you know, the players understanding, you know, the relationship between him and the other midfielders, and he could just pass circles around people and and still influence the game in a major way. And I think that was, I, I didn't get to watch too much of Pirlo when he won both of the, his Champions Leagues at Milan, but I got to watch a lot of Pirlo at, at Juventus, and I think it was, it was so much of that image of him that stuck with me that I think is the most influential part of him. You know, it was the latter stage of his career that that transformed him from being a, a great player to to a legendary player. I think a lot of people, uh, maybe in English press, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, um, overlooked him up until that point. I, you know, I remember when I first found him, I think that I found him on Pro Evo or FIFA before he was even sort of something I could watch. And uh, he wasn't particularly like enterprising player on those games because, you know, like Nico says, it was more about the reading of it. And, you know, if you, so it's, he's not really that kind of computer game player. He's not like a Ronaldo or a Messi where you feel like, you know, you can pick him up and got the ultimate in control or whatever. So I'd always sort of sub him out for, you know, I do like a Seydorf, Ambrosini, uh, someone else in, in that midfield. And you always took him out because there were more effective players in computer games. And then when you saw him on the pitch, you saw why he was important. Um, and I think, you know, maybe st- uh, sort of statistically, he's not the easiest player to quantify. Um, in terms of his actual influence. But if you track his movement for an entire 90 minutes over a number of different games, you'll probably see some really great effects. And uh, also, I guess, it, like you say, as a leader. And he's also painfully hipster, um, which is a great another great aspect of him. I love it. I love it. He lives in New York. Like he, he I think he even moved to New York uh, because he wanted, I think he wanted to live in a very specific, I was reading an article yesterday that said he wanted to live in, I think it was like a Chelsea part or something like that. And, all this sort of stuff. So you sort of think, well, you know, that is, that's painfully hipster. He's got, I think he makes his own, I wrote a few years ago. He has a winery. Yeah. Winery. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a winery. So yeah, there is sort of a a hipster side. He's like that aspiration that, you know, I guess. Buffon says it's, Buffon says his wine is quite good. So. Omega. I mean, he's the front of it. He's like the front of a magazine, but on a pitch. Um, What was, uh, what was our favorite Perlo? moments nico have you got a favorite perlo moment i do it's almost as if i asked you to say that because i've think been thinking about it all week but i think i think um the greatest pirlo moment for me was like a free kick that never went in um in the sense that there was a yeah there was a 
there was, so I think it was the the group stage game of the 2014 World Cup against England. Italy were leading two one. I th- it was sort of at the peak of his free kicking powers, at least in the in the latter stage of his career. And I think earlier in the game, you know, he had made that classic. It was on the left hand side of the goal, um, sort of looping over the 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 wall um, to sort of the right hand side of the keeper. And Joe Hart had made a great save. So th- they had got another free kick in a similar position, and it was a little bit farther out, um, but. It was one of those moments where, like, I think everybody knew sort of what he was expecting. Everybody was expecting him to do sort of the same thing. But if he had done it, I think Joe Hart would have been expecting it. So essentially, he kicked it. It swerved to the left. And then, like magic, it just swerved to the right. And it cannoned off the post. And it didn't go in. But just his ability to do that, like, to control the ball in such an incredible way, to completely fool the goalkeeper, I think that is, like, the coolest thing about him is that he just had the most insane ability to 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 not only you know have a, an amazing free kick but also the most amazing passes and it was just it was a really cool moment i think it went along with like the narrative of the game and it was just uh it was my favorite pillow moment he um he had some i was gonna say my favorite moment uh i think was the penenka against england just because it was so it was almost so effortless <laughs> he looked so uh <laughs> it was so uh I don't want to say arrogant, but it was just like the epitome of cool. But he'd said in his autobiography that the that penalty didn't epitomise him. He felt that the the one where he hit it down the middle in 2006 against France in the World Cup was more his sort of style. You know, that was him. And the quote from that that moment when he was talking about taking that penalty against Bardez was, uh, I lifted my eyes to the heavens and asked God for help because if he exists, there's no way he's French. Uh, so that <laughs> <laughs> Gordon Brown told him to just put it down the middle. Such a great quote. Yeah, that's so true as well. And yeah. of course, that's from his autobiography called "I Think, Therefore I Play," which is uh, a pretty amazing name for an autobiography as well. Uh, have you got a favourite Perlo moment, Norris? I was going to go for the Joe Hart one. Um, I think when he, uh, I mean. I think when he first went to NYCFC, there was a, a great moment of him just sort of. They, a lot of people accused him of being lazy, um, and there's a there's loads of great clips of him uh, sort of just not doing anything or looking like he's not doing anything, and everyone's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe he's given up." Uh, which was uh, great moments. I also think it, it was it was very interesting to see how when he. I remember when I met AC Milan and thinking he's not an incredible player. Um, I also remember him when he first moved to Juventus and they obviously Allegri moved the midfield around him. Um, I think that was a real, that was sort of the shift for him when English people started to appreciate him. And I think that uh, there's, you know, you remember him much more in the Juventus shirt than you do in the AC Milan shirt. Mm, interesting. Would you, would you agree with that Chris? He's, he's, I think he's defined more by his time at Juventus and the success than he was at AC Milan. Um, yeah, I, th- I think he, I think, that was where it started to almost click for him, if if you if you will, because I think he became a, a much more of a deciding factor. Then he had a setup that was much much more catering to him, um, and I think that midfield of Pelo, Pogba, Vidal was so perfectly balanced in terms of the skill sets that it had and how they complement each other. I think it. It it made the most of his ability. I don't think I don't think personally he got drastically better when he went to Juventus. I think it was more about the setup around him that that made him look better. Um, in terms of favorite ever Pelo moments, um, 
there's a goal for Brescia that he doesn't score, but he sets up Roberto Baggio. Um, and actually, Baggio is a huge influence on his career, if you look at it, because prior to that, Pillow was a number 10, and Baggio's arrival at Brescia shifts him back to be the, the register or the, the deep-line playmaker that we know now. And it's a long pass over the top of the defence that Baggio sort of then... As he brings it down, he flicks it to to the left of him, if that makes sense when I say it like that. Mm. And that breaks it around the goalkeeper and he passes it in and it's almost kind of, you know, this beautiful harmony um, between the two of them. Because if I remember right, Baggio was number 10, Pelo was number 5. So there was... Uh, perhaps even a subtle message in there as well um let's uh, let's move on from the pillow appreciation then uh we've got a question here from lukey bora who says can david moyes realistically ever get back to a stage where he is a well-respected manager again like he was at everton as a west ham fan i'd love to see that but with his failures at united sociedad and sunderland do they outweigh his time at everton and preston uh, what do you think, Lawrence? Obviously, Moyes appointed this week. We obviously spoke about this on Monday. Uh, quite an unpopular appointment, I think it's fair to say, but it does seem to be not a degree of sympathy, but almost a degree of optimism that uh, Moyes can refind or rediscover what made him such a good manager at Everton. Lawrence McKenna, why don't you talk about that? Sorry, I was muted. Uh, just for your own purposes, uh, I think it was. Uh, quite a defining moment um, when he first left Everton because people saw it was quite brave, sort of something that he was he was almost fly, um, fleeing the Coopers or something like that. Um, and I think a lot of people sort of thought, you know, they, they were a perfect match. Uh, after that, uh, less people thought of them as a perfect match. He became synonymous with other uh, aspects of the game. I think a lot of people forgot what he'd originally he, brought he kind of, to was, Everton. In hindsight, when he like immediately after he left, there kind of be seemed to be this almost revisionism about David Moyes. Uh, like, oh, he wasn't actually that good. We needed to move on from him. We, we moved up to the next level with Martinez, etc., which seemed to be a little bit harsh. Yeah, a little. Um, and I mean, no, maybe not harsh because actually, I think a lot of people. When you say revisionist, I don't think anyone really revised what he'd achieved at Everton. I think a lot of people saw that achievement. I think a lot of people revised their view of him, which was they thought he could go on to do bigger things. Yeah. And um, when he, he's gone on to do, or at least attempt to do some of those bigger things, he's not necessarily been able to um, transpose that same success that he had at Everton onto a new club. And I think part of that, then the reputation begins to follow you as a manager. Obviously, when you then go around and players think, well, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, why would I listen to this guy um i think that then becomes a bit more challenging because obviously you know a play, uh, players like even even as said today you know i i dream of playing a, with a manager like Zidane, and he says that because he was a hero as a kid that i doubt there are many players who look at david Moyes and think that was my hero as a kid that's not to put him down it's just that he's not you know he's not the same kind of manager um but i also think there's some great um, great points that follow around with that is that he seemed like a he came across in a very dour way and almost comedically dour way when he was at um, Sunderland and you know he would sort of be asked are you guys going to stay up and he was like no I've always said we'll go down and he was like well it's it's interesting when that Chris isn't it because I think did he come out this week and say you know oh, I didn't quite do my due diligence before moving to Sunderland it wasn't the right club for me yeah he, he said he said he didn't uh do his due diligence. It was a bad. It was a bad job to take. Look, Sunderland were not 
in the best state when he arrived, but to make out as if they were, you know, heading for the sun already. No, yeah, that's, absolutely. That's so misleading and ridiculous because this is the thing. Sam Allardyce had kept them up. I think they'd only lost one in their last 11 or something like that going into the back end of the season. And prior to Allardyce leaving, there was just a little bit of optimism as if, okay, maybe we can build on something and, and hit 15th or 14th. And he came in, he was given, I think, $35 million during the course of the season. Um, there was deals for Yedlin lined up that he didn't push through with. And Villa was interested at one stage in, in making it permanent. But instead, he, he got guys like Javier Manquillo on loan. He bought Donald Love, uh, Paddy McNair. It, I think I looked it up last night. Eight of the 13 players he signed were either via Man United or Everton or players that he'd worked with at those clubs. So I, I think... For him to make out as if his mistake was choosing the club in the first place, I think that's wholly disingenuous to, to the decisions he made and the fact that as as early as the second game of the season when they lose to Middlesbrough, he says, yeah, we're in a relegation fight this year. Two, two games in, not even a month, two games in and he's saying they're in a relegation fight. And, and come January... They, they look to make some signings and he publicly states, well, anyone we get won't be uh, enough quality to make a massive difference anyway. So so what what does that say to, to Darren Gibson, to Brian Oviedo, to Lescott when they come in? Oh, you, you pretty you much come around anyway. Kind of the, it, it's, I don't think it's impossible that he returns to his Everton form, but I think if he keeps going around believing that he's done nothing wrong, then he's in for an absolute horror show at, at West Ham. Because I did a piece for, for Unibet on this, and in reading about his time at Sociedad, there was a journalist who wrote an opinion piece as he left. He was sacked a day before his year anniversary. And he said, even now, almost a year in, it looks as if he's learnt nothing about the league, the players, the referees, the culture, anything from when he first arrived. And I think that stubbornness is what will continue to hold him back if he keeps holding on to it. Because I think not every situation is Everton. Not every situation has those cast-iron rules that you can apply to them. And his lack of adaptability and flexibility, I think, is what's holding him back drastically, personally. It's also unusual, I guess, because actually, I think Big Sam said it, a number of people have said it, and obviously West Ham fans say it themselves on a weekly basis. It's great banter in London. Um, there's the West Ham <laughs> way. And... Um, David Moyes arguably embodies the antithesis of that. Um, I hope I'm using that word correctly. Well, that's um, part of the problem, though, at the same time, is that they, from what I see, West Ham fans pick and choose when they want the West Ham way. I, I pointed out to, to, to that myself careful. that in the summer, you know, they signed Zabaleta, they signed Hart, they signed all these players and said that Reese Oxford hasn't got a chance. I said to me, that didn't seem conducive to the West Ham way. And one of these prominent uh, YouTube fan channel personalities called me a parasite and said that it was it was our side of the fence that made this West Ham way thing up. And I, sh and I looked it up and no, we didn't at all. It's West Ham that have, have proliferated this idea of a West Ham way. And yet, really, it seems like fans will happily chuck it out when they think, oh, crap, we're going to get relegated here. And I think this is what they've got to decide from the, the Dildo brothers downwards. Is this actually what you stand for? Or are you trying to build something that's got a little bit of 
ambiguity about how you get to point B, but that's where you're trying to get to, which mm. apparently was Champions League at one stage. Uh, will you even? Will you? I guess will you stand by whilst uh, football like that happens? And strangely, I guess it also shows a lot about West Ham and their planning that they got rid of. I mean, obviously they got rid of um, uh, Billich, and that's obviously interesting, but. Um, it's also unusual then that their replacement doesn't seem like an upgrade. Do you know what I mean? Just, and it, you know, obviously there are certain managers who can do a job, whether they steady a club, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't really seem like they've got the guy. For I mean, I'd be more than happy to see what he does do. I, you know, I think he's got a chance if he can, like Kristen says, do and do the rehabilitation. Mm. But if he doesn't, then we get the feeling it goes the opposite way. I, w- I went to Upton Park for, for one of the, the, the last few games that Allardyce had. And the atmosphere there was pretty toxic. And at no point did I think West Ham fans were for wrong for wanting more than what Allardyce offered them. But at the same time, you've got to decide, you know, you've got you've got to give yourself some type of identity in terms of what you're trying to do. And that's the problem with West Ham. I think it's very much a reactive football club, not a one that's prepared. Great question here from Ryan Striff who says, for everyone on the pod, who is the most improved player on your team this season? Uh, Nico, why don't you start? The most improved Manchester City player, in your opinion, so far this season? I'm going to say... This is a difficult one. Um, Fabian Delph, why not? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good show. It's obviously uh, sort of an uh, almost essential part of the team now, with Benjamin Mendy out. Um, what about Liverpool, Lawrence? Uh, Dejan Lovren um, is going through a hard time at the moment and I think uh, there are elements where I see massive improvements in his game in, in, um, uh, if he, when he keeps his head together uh, and then there are also elements where I think uh, he obviously loses that focus and that self-belief I think a lot of that a lot of his game is based around self-belief I think there's a manager that can regain that's probably Jurgen Klopp um, who else has looked better I mean obviously Salah is an improvement in that position, I think Sadio Mane has continued on the same trajectory. Mm-hmm. You could say Firmino is still a very positive player, but it hasn't vastly improved. I don't think Coutinho hasn't gotten better in any um, sort of measurable way. Um, Wijnaldum is Wijnaldum. Wijnaldum. Uh, you could say someone like, I mean, I guess someone like Joe Gomez is, is um, moving forward. And I also think people like Trent, like Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, also very positive uh, Goalkeeping-wise, I'm not sure that we can 100% be happy there. And then, obviously, there's the excitement of Brewster, Rian Brewster, uh, coming back from the World Cup and the under-17s. Uh, mm-hmm. Liverpool, one of Liverpool's coaches today saying, we aren't going to roll out the red carpet when he gets back. He's wow. not the kind of lad to let it go to his head, I think is what they said. Um, but they, they'll be careful to... And I love when um, under-whatever's coaches say things because they use really great cliched phrases. They went, we won't let it go to his head, but he's not that kind of lad, so we'll nip that in the bud if he is. Uh, and he just, I think he just spoke only in platitudes <laughs> after that. <laughs> um, what well, Spurs? I'm trying to think. Oh, I think uh, definitely uh, Harry Winks. I think uh, we always knew he had the potential, but I think he's proved it on the biggest stages, i.e., in the Champions League against the likes of Real Madrid this season. Um, he definitely belongs at this level and looks like someone who's going to be in the team for a, for a long time to come. Musa Sissoko as well. Strange, only because. Uh, the, the bar was set so low with Musa Zoko. Now he's getting a run in the team. 
and he actually looks uh, half decent, maybe not even half decent, but definitely better than last season. So I would say, I'd, I'd say he's definitely improved. Kieran Trippier as well, I think has been fantastic this season as well. A lot of fans sort of expecting Serge Aurier to come in and be that first choice, whereas Kieran Trippier at the moment potentially looks like the uh, the better option at right back. Uh, what about Newcastle, Chris? Is anyone who's impressed you has improved from last last season? Jamal Lascelles. The captain himself. That's it. Bang, full stop. Uh, here's another great question. This is from Simran Janda, who says, what are each of your happiest football memories? If you're having trouble on something specific, was there a moment that made you think, I absolutely love football? Much love to the gang. Thanks for the question, Simran. Tough question. Happiest football memories. Uh, for me, I think it's got to be it's got to be with the team you support, England and Spurs. I think Euro 96 is always big happy memory. Seeing the Spurs weren't very good when I was younger in the 90s. Euro 96 was the first time where a team I was following was actually doing really well, getting to those semi-finals, although that was heartbreaking. You had the game against Scotland, which was fantastic. The win over Holland, all that sort of stuff was, was amazing. Um, for Spurs, maybe... Uh, get into the Champions League for the first time. Peter Crouch scoring that goal against Man City. Uh, that Champions League campaign with Gareth Bale was so extraordinary against Inter Milan, of course. Uh, beating a team like that, I think, uh, for a Spurs fan, even at that stage, was pretty incredible. And weirdly, one of the happiest memories of mine in the moment was definitely, uh, I think it was the opening game of the... What was the, the World Cup? Is it 2014, the last World Cup? Yeah, the 2014 World Cup. Who did England play in that opening game? Who did we play? Someone quite tough. But there was a moment where I went to see it at one of those big sort of uh, open park things outside, big screen sort of event with a couple right. of mates and stuff. Everyone there, you know, massive crowd, everyone getting, uh, getting excited, let's say. And there was a moment in the opening stages where everyone was, everyone was getting a bit carried away. And I think Raheem Sterling had a long-range shot which looked like it was it was going in. Uh, it looked, was Italy, wasn't it? It looked like it, yeah, and it looked like it had flown into the top corner, and everyone around me went mental. Everyone was going crazy. Everyone jumping up and down, throwing their drinks around. My glasses got smashed that night in that moment, uh, so I couldn't actually see the rest of the game. But everyone was going absolutely <laughs> mental. Everyone was like, "Yeah, we're going to win!" Like, like sort of like getting carried away on this tidal wave of we're going to win the World Cup we're going to beat Italy it's going to be amazing and of course everyone looked up and was like oh actually hit the side net and sort of thing but everyone, oh. was, going, everyone was going mental so I think at the time in in that moment that was the happiest one of the happiest I've been because everyone was just like oh my god this is incredible but uh, yeah in hindsight not so much yeah it wasn't great growing up as a Spurs fan in the 90s uh, the highlight was the Worthington Cup in 1999 so uh, I said it all really doesn't it um, Chris any uh, happiest football memories uh, for England no not really uh, for, for Newcastle I mean, it could even be in general is it? It even could even less be, it could be <laughs> uh, beating Sunderland 5 one was pretty good I'm not going to lie because yeah. I was what about beating Germany 5-1? Um, <laughs> I missed that. I was at church. Um, <laughs> That's it. He's not joking. He's not joking. I know him in real life. He's not joking. Lawrence, have you got any happiest football memories? Well, Chris was going to expand on his uh, oh, please, memory. Please go yeah. on, Chris. Uh, yeah, it was just great because we, we'd been promoted. And, and when 
you have been promoted, you're never too sure how you're going to adapt the next season. And so there was every... And if I remember right, Sunderland finished quite well the season that we went up. So, like, the... What do you call it? The, they were the not the favourites per se, but like they were perceived as stronger, at least for an hour, uh, from my opinion. So yeah, that was a pretty good one, and it was totally out of nowhere as well, um, which was was quite a surprise. But yeah, that's probably the best one I can think of. Um, mm-hmm. Newcastle. Go on, lads. Here's mine. Some beautiful memories. Uh, seems like a fairly obvious one. Um, there have been a lot of big yeah. ones down the years, but I think you'll, you always look at the things, and especially when you look backwards and join all the dots together, you look at the things that then led on to very happy memories. Um, I think it was midway through my GCSEs that I watched Liverpool play um, AC Milan in 2005. And it was at that point where I was sort of nervous about exams and I was like, everything I'm behind, I'm never going to be able to catch up. Like, you know, I've got all this work I need to do. And uh, I'm not joking, watching that game, I was so nervous. And I was, I just sat still watching the screen the whole time. And I, so I'd gone through the first half, Liverpool 3-0 down and you just think, right, this is going to be an absolute thrashing. We have to bunker in now and just make sure it's not 6-7 and just really embarrassing. And people were... Or, sort of a half time questioning all sorts of things but I was completely alone at home my dad went out for a walk because he couldn't watch the second half he's like I just can't watch this so I was sat motionless uh, in front of the tv just like praying that something went in um and then obviously the first goal goes in and you're like okay this is this is a bit more respectable now like Liverpool really digging in Xabi Lonzo and Didi Haman at the center of midfield and you know they look a bit more solid now that Benitez has made that change and then Smitsa's uh, goal goes in, his wheels away, his face looks so happy and Barosh looks dumbfounded. And then Gerard bursts into the area and Gattuso brings him down or doesn't, dependent on which side you're on. And then Alonso, of all players, steps up and puts it in and uh, obviously on the rebound, not even on the penalty, Dida saved the penalty. Um, and so it's just a lesson in how uh, mentality and sort of I don't even think it was an element of self-belief that Liverpool team I don't think that Liverpool team I mean there were obviously moments which had defined it like that it, when you look back you know there's like the ghost goal and there's the amazing Luis, uh, Louis um, Garcia Luis Garcia goal yeah. that led to that uh, against Juventus and then I remember just thinking right I can I can do whatever I, I want now in my A-levels uh, my GCSEs because you know these guys were behind by so much and in the next two weeks, I don't think I've ever revised so hard. Um, <laughs> and it worked. It worked. So, you know, that I think that was a fairly sort of life-changing um, moment in terms of football because it was... I like that. I think it had like a very direct emotional effect. And that's probably mm. like also one of the last times I felt so uh, close to a team because, you know, there were like, there were there was so much hope and um, and uh, passion surrounding that Liverpool side. Mm. And the Rafa Tola was... Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. 
That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, it's difficult to, to follow that up. I think that was very inspirational. Uh, for Spain, which is the, the country that I generally support uh, internationally because uh, it was passed down to me from my sort of my grandparents, um, Euro 2012 was was special for me. I think the final was a moment where I was really elated at the result, obviously, um, and just how dominant Spain were, Uh, as well as, like, the 2014 World Cup was just, like, a really special tournament for me. Uh, Just a lot of things going on in my life personally that I think just coincided with a great tournament that created, like, they they always described it on ESPN as like a festival of football, and that's just you know it was summertime, so there wasn't school going on, and it was just a it was just a cool period to to watch football, and it was a lot of fun. Um, for Manchester City, uh, I would probably I keep coming back to this moment every time people ask me about it, but I think last year uh, the three one against Barcelona was amazing to watch because of the value for Manchester City fans because obviously we had been knocked out of the Champions League or beaten heavily by Barcelona because we had drawn them or played them really early on in the competition and to like have it was Pep Guardiola's first year and to like actually win against Barcelona in such a great game such a back and forth game kind of I don't know it, it felt special because it felt like City were once again pushing you know pushing the status of the club higher and higher you know as we have in in season previous. It's, I was at that final Euro 2012. It was um, oh, God, it was a really a it was a it was a really dominating performance as well. I think a lot of the, the Spain crowd were a little bit nervous because um, they've been playing a lot more conservatively for that tournament, at least early on. And you know, I think it was uh, I went to go and see them play Italy in Dan- uh, Dansk, um, and then we sort of monitored. They, them they drew that. They the drew that first one, right? Yeah, did they? Yeah. yeah, it was like a one one all, was that? Um, yeah, and the the Spain play and, and everyone sort of what was really interesting was Arag was it Aragonés at the time? Who was it? Who, who was leading the team? Yeah, yeah, uh, um, no, 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 it was uh, uh, no, 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 because that was tw- two thousand eight. So two thousand twelve would have been uh, um, Del Bosque. Still Del Bosque. Oh uh, yeah, Del Bosque. Um, was basically saying like, look, we're going to play more conservatively. And what was amazing about it was they did play more conservatively, and the Spain fans backed them. And it, people were like, well, Tiki Tuck is dead. Like, you know, we can't do anything anymore. Like, this is. And loads of people, I remember being at the tournament, and I, my whole job was to report on what the fans were saying. And they, were st- they still looked good, but they didn't look. They weren't as exciting. So people were accusing them of being boring, and they were like, I don't want Spain to win because they're boring. And, you know, they try and kill all kinds of football, aren't they? Italians to win because they're more exciting, they're more passionate, blah, blah, blah. And then. They went to the final and absolutely killed them. Like just, it was one of the most dominating performances I've seen live. And there was, there was not even worry. Like the, the Spain players just stepped out and it was as if they'd like sprung it on them. 
they were suddenly like, right, oh, by the way, we can also do this. So it was like the greatest of redemption. And all the, the Spain fans were like obviously going crazy because they're Spanish. And um, what was really great about it was it, it, um, it kind of, it redeemed something that I remember Jonathan Wilson saying to me as well about England was England in, it might've been the sixties, maybe the seventies were working on a formation and they worked on it in training and didn't play it against a few other sides, but they worked on it in training and the, the manager at the time, I don't remember his name said, we'll play the reserves or the, I think it was maybe the under 21s or something. And they absolutely killed them. And then they went and didn't play it in a game. And then one day they just began to play this new, uh, like a change in the formation. I can't remember exactly what it was. I can't remember if it was three at the back or there was something that was happening out in the wings that was different. And it just completely caught the other team on the hop. And it felt the same when you're watching Spain, which felt so unusual because normally teams are so well briefed and managers are like ready for this sort of thing. Um, and that's what was so astounding about it was it, it felt like a real, um, like almost movie-esque masterstroke, which was so special at the time today mm. yeah i think i think the coolest thing about their performance just to 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 speak specifically about it was like you're saying they played more conservatively throughout the entire tournament except for the final and it was just so the way in which spain used that you know specifically Cesar Fabregas in the false nine was an idea that hadn't i mean it kind of worked in some sense with pep guardiola at barcelona and the way that he liked to use Fabregas, but I think with the culmination of both the Real Madrid and Barcelona players coming together in the in the Spanish national team for that national period in which they dominated so much. And, I mean, Jonathan Wilson specifically talked about sort of the death of Tiki Taka in 2014, and I've written a, a little bit about that as well. But I think that was sort of like one of the brightest embers of like what that style of football and sort of the, the peak of its powers could achieve because if you watch that game back which i recommend all the listeners do it's unless you're italian of course um it's so amazing to watch just the positional play and how they use Cesc fabregas which i think for me was sort of the most influential player in that formation in such a creative way and it, like you're saying it was it was a really dominant performance it was great to watch Hmm. Makes you think of uh, Simran said, you know, uh, what those moments that make you think I absolutely love football as well. It's those moments where you feel like you're watching history or you feel like you're watching something seismic. I mean, even last season, Barcelona's comeback, watching that was the sort of moment where you just think, oh God, I absolutely love football. And of course, Aguero, the, the moment where they won the league, I feel that's when, if not football peaked, definitely the Premier League peaked. That was just the greatest finale of all time. So incredible stuff there, guys. Let us know what you think. Your, your your favorite football moments are your happiest football moments as well do send them in on twitter we'd love to see them i think that's a really interesting question from simran uh we've got another great question here from carlos carlos Zaldivar, a long time listener always sending the great questions uh maybe a bit of a controversial one he says i don't know about you but recently oh he says i know you recently did a pod about the fourth best player in the world however am i crazy biased to think that Cristiano Ronaldo doesn't even slot into the top two anymore, maybe even the top three unquestioned. Watching Real Madrid play almost every well in my oh, no, no. watching Real Madrid play almost every week, in my opinion, his contribution to the team's build-up has been non-existent for the past two seasons, and he isn't even finishing at the same rate as he used to. He won the best of. Uh, the FIFA award off the back of three great months but apart from that in my opinion he isn't undisputedly in the top two or three players in the world um what do you reckon to that Chris uh Cristiano Ronaldo didn't deserve to win the best he's not even in the best two or three players in the world and he's crap basically 
I disagree with that personally. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe slightly hyperbolic. Um, do you think he's still in that bracket? Though? I mean, surely he's one of the most uh, effective, efficient players playing today. He can decide a game by himself almost. As uh, as different as he is now as a player, as much as he's sort of had to change his game, surely he's still, uh, he's still in that class. I mean, yes, he's not had the greatest start to, to the La Liga season, but I think that has to be given the context of relative to his usual high standards. And I, I think, I think yeah, there's, a, there's enough quality in him and determination and all of those traits to, to get him back to that level. So, yeah, I think it would be a tad hyperbolic to, to write him off during what is just the first few months of the season. I think mm. you've got to wait until... Uh, until the entire season before you start to say, well, okay, is he now on a decline? I think that's the problem. Sometimes we're a bit too eager to 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 profess someone's decline before it's actually really start to happen. Oh yeah, he's definitely been unseated as number two by Harry Kane, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see if he can get his position back by the end of the season. Uh, lots of great questions here. Let's try and get through them a little bit quicker because uh, I think we're fifty minutes in already. Uh, Evan Poland says, "What do you think about the David Luiz and Conte?" Situation: Are we seeing another Costa-style bust-up, and is this a trend Chelsea fans should be worried about? Uh, what do you reckon, Lawrence? I mean, the Costa situation seemed to work out right in the end. They obviously got a huge fee from Atletico, and he's on his way back to the club in January. But David Luiz and Costa situation. I mean, there was those question marks. Despite Chelsea winning a huge game at the weekend, Conte's approach is sort of the alpha male. He has to. He has to be the authoritarian figure almost in the club. It doesn't seem to, to work at Chelsea when you've already got the big man in, Roman Abramovich, there. It doesn't seem to bode well for him if he's fallen out with the players now. Yeah, I read some of the notes that they made for a documentary not long ago now about um, Conte. And it, it was interesting, the observations that uh, not only I made, I think Kristen and the, a couple of the other guys have made. About um, you know how he needs this absolute how he needs this absolutism, but also how that absolutism also applies to him as well. And so when he isn't 100% invested in a project, or he finds elements to maybe uh, not as excuses, but as sort of um, I'm trying to think of a better word than the word excuse. But it, it, some people have accused him of, of sometimes making excuses for the way that people play. So for, for instance, at Juventus, there was you know we don't have the same investment as other players. Um, as other teams and to some extent that's true not or 100% true I think he spent 189 million in the time that he was there whereas Max Allegri spent a lot more um, you could say they also recouped on transfers but whatever it, at the same time there, there are still rumblings in the London newspapers or the London newspaper and London blogs very regularly which seem seeded by certain people about disgruntled players players who aren't as happy with the status of the club right now aren't happy uh, about the way that he dealt with Diego Costa because apparently he was very popular in the dressing room and other players have sort of seen that as a problem or a challenge to the way that they want to have the club um, and I guess when you get into that sort of situation there's, there are going to be players who if they do something wrong then the authoritarian is going to do something um, I guess there's also an element of this that if he sees now which you'd argue there are a few of those in Italy right now not least AC Milan then his only real motivation to continue or one of his many motivations to continue with Chelsea would be uh, a reputation and be the fact that he wants to uh, get that job at AC Milan or get another bigger job next season. He's, he's spoken about his want to go back. So, 
yeah, I don't think he cares sometimes about some of the people that he's upsetting. I'd imagine mm. this is a motivational tactic and something maybe to teach the player or to sort of prove a point in a way. Um, he's not petty uh, in that sense, though. Um, actually, no, he is. Um, yeah, he is petty. And <laughs> there have been times, there have been times oh, yeah. where, so for instance, there's a, I don't think he made it into the documentary, but there were, I think it was Mina Rizuki who told uh, Chris and I this story of, um, and this might be in a front three video on the front three YouTube channel. She mm. basically said they won the league and he raced into the opposition team's dressing room and sort of um, taunting them in a way. And I don't know, I, I guess that does sort of summarize elements of him when he gets carried away. And sometimes you get the feeling that Conte does get very carried away and loses himself. Mm. And at times you say, if you want to keep a dressing room, it's great to get carried away, but in the right way. And I just wonder if there are elements at Chelsea where he's been carried away in the wrong way. And that's why people like Eden Hazard and, and uh, other players are making noises that they may want to move on. Mm, interesting. I mean, speaking of the future of managers, specifically Virginia Blues has written in, says, who is the next manager at Manchester United? There's been a few rumblings this week, Chris, that Mourinho could be off at the end of the season. Uh, certain discontent potentially there. There's been talk that he could go to PSG, which has led some to speculate who could potentially follow in that Old Trafford. I mean, Maurizio Pochettino is the bookies' favourite, is someone who's always mentioned as uh, someone who'd be a fantastic manager at Manchester United. But uh, do you think that's a realistic option? Do you think there's anyone else out there who potentially sue, potentially Diego Simeone? Of course, he may well be going to, to the end of his time at Atletico Madrid. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti, I guess, is technically free. He is. Um... I know Pochettino said he, I think he wanted to coach PSG one stage. I don't think he goes anytime soon, though, if I'm really honest. Um, I don't think Mourinho goes to uh, PSG either. I, I think, um, I, I think first and foremost, I don't think he would have someone he could pit himself against in, in that country. Does that does that make mm. sense? Like a, yeah. a, a rival, if you will, or an adversary. He um, needs that, yeah. And I think at the same time, I, I don't actually think PSG would be that interested in him right now. I think there was a stage where maybe they were a little bit uh, or, or weren't as far along in the project as they are now, where I think, yeah, they would have considered him and thought, you know what, he could maybe give us that Champions League or whatever. But I think the the, the victory at Inter is, is a, a good long while in the, the rearview mirror now. And I think that's something that would influence them. Um, I can't so see him yeah, getting on with the Neymar either. I just can't see that one going well. Yeah, that's... If, if, you, if you look at sort of the way that he's tried to, to make Man United now, I think potentially stifling the likes of Neymar and, and Mbappe's creativity and that stuff and, and giving them too much structure, I feel like that might kill them in uh, in the domestic league, if not in the Champions League. So, yeah, I don't actually think it's, a, it's that good a fit. Simeone's an interesting one i think he's going to have a lot of different places to to potentially pick from um when he does leave but i think he would probably end up in the premier league um that's cut for me that's kind of the problem with with psg i appreciate that monaco won the league last season but for most managers i don't know if the if the risk is worth the reward because yeah. if you don't win the league as psg manager like Unai Emery did last season, you are seen as... <gasps> best players in theory and all this kind of stuff. Whereas, say, say that again, Chris, because you just broke if, up. If, 
you just put, so you said if you didn't win it as Uma Emery did last season, then you're seen as blank. Then you're seen as a, a failure because you, in theory you got the most resources, you got the best players, etc., etc. Whereas if you win the league, it's not seen as a massive achievement because you've got Mbappe, you've got Neymar, Verratti, the list goes on. Yeah. So Should I, be I win, think. Though. Yeah, there there is almost a feeling that you should be winning the league. So I think it's it's not that appealing to to most managers of that elite level. Mm. It also comes. Can I just add one thing to that? There, there's a few caveats with PSG at the moment. So um, I, I was speaking to a, uh, someone who sort of manages players the other day, uh, player agent in a way, and um, they were saying there's a there's a real players culture at PSG, and sort of that's one of the reasons that Neymar wanted to move was. He uh, felt a bit isolated at Barcelona and at, at PSG. There was a bit more player power. Maybe there was a bit more um, <clears throat> of a, a feeling that they were trying to... There was a different culture there. And Neymar is apparently much happier now. He's there. You know, he's obviously got Dani Alves and a little clique there, whereas he didn't felt, feel that he had that at Barcelona. There's also not really, like Chris says, a ready-made enemy for Mourinho. And if anything, uh, there are many sweethearts for them to... Um, pit themselves against so he could go in and play the bad guy but that wouldn't particularly work very well and um, at the same time you know he's probably got other axes to grind ahead of uh, you know the PSG one and imagine I mean Portugal must be a pretty tempting uh, pretty tempting proposition now mm. for him especially if, when Ronaldo's moved on transitioning out of that um, there's, a, there's a fair bit there and I know that Dave himself says that Mourinho should leave tomorrow yeah, and he's not here to disagree. Uh, here's a question for you, Nico. Uh, Dan Deakins writes in saying, why has free at the back become such a trendy formation? Is it the managers putting less focus on defensive coaching or the wider issue of there being fewer quality centre-backs in the market? And why are some teams persisting with it when it's not working, i.e. West Ham? I think there are elements to the sort of three back defensive formation that can be very, um, you know, given the crop of players, it's a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, top teams in each, you know, top five leagues have, um, there are a lot of, uh, players that are, would, would fit really well in that system. I think you can sort of bypass the midfield if you want to kind of like what Chelsea or what Conte has done at Chelsea, you can progress the ball really easily through wing backs. I also think that sort of in the more maybe advanced tactical minds of some of the better managers like Mauricio Pochettino, what some of the things that, um, Spurs do best is using sort of their five, uh, defensive players as, as sort of a base for what they do both defensively and offensively. So earlier you spoke about um, Aurier, you know, coming in maybe being the first choice right back. I don't necessarily think that um, at the top level, you know, the, the positions really work like that anymore. You know, in a game where you need someone to be more athletic to silence or negate a really good player on the right hand or left hand side, you can use Aurier in those situations. But in other situations where you need to break down a team with his type of crossing, then you can use Kyrian Trippier as opposed to Serge Aurier. And it's not necessarily like one is better than the other. They just give you uh, different options. So, um, but continuing along the line of, uh, of Spurs as well as Chelsea, um, a lot of teams, what they do now is sort of compact the formation really well. And they use the passing ability of their center back. So Cesarez Piliqueta, for example, his goal or his assist rather uh, to Alvaro Morata in, in the United game is a perfect example Spurs do it a lot with Toby Alderweireld. Manchester City do it to some extent with John Stones and Nicholas Otamendi. So uh, even though they don't play a three-back system, they did last year. Uh, there are just a lot of um, 
ways to use the modern center back. Leonardo Manucci, for example, was used uh, perfectly by uh, Massimiliano Allegri uh, at Juventus the past couple of years, his passing ability. So it's just it's more really about using um, every facet of the modern player as opposed to, you know, one system being better than the other. For example, you know, Manchester City, they're at the top of a lot of people's lists this season for being the, one of the best teams in Europe. Um, and they play a four through three week in and week out. So it's not necessarily, you know, about the system being good at the time. It's just more about, you know, a lot of people using it. And maybe there's not that many ways to negate it if you're not using a similar system. Mm. Um, here's an international themed question from Tom Smith for international football, e.g. England. Would you select young players with potential ahead of mediocre players? For example, Sancho over Lingard. Uh, England, of course, uh, have friendlies coming up this weekend. Germany first, I believe, then Brazil. Uh, Lawrence, would you like to see the likes of Sancho, uh, potentially some of the players from that under-17 squad, being given a chance in this squad? I mean, obviously that can't happen now. Gareth Southgate selected his team, although a lot of players have dropped out. Harry Kane, I believe, Harry Winks, Jordan Henderson, I think, as well has dropped out. Do you think potentially... Yeah, well, he didn't drop out. I don't think he was ever... I mean, you shouldn't have been included in the first place. Um, this could yeah. potentially be a, a, an opportunity to give these players a, a showcase almost, to test them. I mean, what have you got to lose? These games don't really mean anything. Why not give them a chance? I guess that well, you could make another point to that. I mean, I see that. I see you could maybe invite a few players in. You know what your core squad is. Mm. You get the feeling that there's a reason those players are included. You've got to remember that Gareth Southgate is England manager, so he's not... It's, it's not the same as letting another manager into your dressing room. You know, you very often managers will give notes or they'll give briefings to a manager about what that player is doing. You know, that's why Southgate goes to all these games to watch the players play. It's not like, obviously, this is the first time maybe he'll get to see them up close in a, a very literal uh, sense of uh, playing as a, a senior player. But then when they're called up for the under-21s, when they're called up for the under-17s, he's also going to see them there. Uh, because obviously he's England manager and he can go to those training sessions. So th- I think what we don't see, we sort of assume doesn't happen. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I understand I understand the point of, you know, bringing players in, betting them in. Uh, it, it's totally dependent upon the player. Um, I sort of see that the point that's also broad, broadly being made there, which is you sort of want to bring through these young players whilst you've got the opportunity to, and it seems as if England have got the opportunity to right now. I think Tammy Abraham is part of the squad, isn't he? Uh, I believe so, yes. I believe he's, he's been drafted in, which would be interesting to see. Uh, yep, yeah, good. Uh, and and so that there are elements like that. I think you have to also keep the senior players uh, happy because uh, there's, there's elements of that as well. Um, but I, I would imagine also there are going to be some uh, some players who, uh, if they were moved out, would be a little bit put out. And then I guess you are sort of very, very, very committed at that point to the um, to the players who you bring in. And that's, yeah. uh, that's a real commitment. Doesn't look like a great squad. Um, great. For this, these, uh, these friendlies. So, uh, can can we'll I just see. say as well, though, um, with the with the wording, I mean, maybe not the wording. I don't want to hone in on that, but I think the important thing um, to mention here, specifically about national teams, is like the idea that I was talking about before. I think far too often people 
think of football in this sort of meritocracy sort of way and it's sort of very basic like a very basic hierarchy structure like oh this player's better than the other and i think that's and we've we've talked about it in this podcast before um that's the trap that sort of england fall into far too often i think is that i think there was a video that Lawrence did with uh, tfr a long time ago talking about you know who should be who should uh, England take to? I think it was Euro 2016 or something like that. I think Rory um, actually and quite literally yeah, said Rory, Rory said Rory said yeah. He said well. He also said that um, all you need to do to get the strikers that England should take to a national competition is go down specifically the Premier League top scorer list, look at all the English names, and just pick those one by one who scored the most goals. And I mean, with all due respect to Rory, I don't think that's a very intelligent thing to do because it's, it doesn't work that way. I think if we've looked at what has worked uh, in international competitions for countries that have succeeded, which England are not one of those, um, they are consistent with the tactical idea. They're consistent with a group of players. And that group of players is not a, a group of players selected by committee based on the, the teams that they play for. And that's the problem is that we have to have a player from Manchester United. We have to play, have a player from Manchester City. We have to have a player from Everton and Liverpool and whoever. And that's just, it's a bad way to do international uh, football. And it, it, we're going to continue, or that country is going to continue to fall behind if they think that it's that sort of process. We take the best 24 players as opposed to taking the best team. Uh, final question, or final couple of questions, we'll say. Uh, Chris, you can tackle this one. Uh, Andrew Thompson, AJ Soccer 22, writes in, what are your opinions on the U.S. soccer presidential nominations? Do you believe that these current board members should be allowed to be nominated due to their poor choices within the last few years leading up to not qualifying for the World Cup? Um, yeah, that, that's the democratic process. You can't just exclude someone for bad performance. If they, if they do something illegal, that's a different question. But yeah, you can't just say, well, you know, the team didn't perform, so you can't run again. Um, I believe there are term limits potentially coming in at some stage as well, which is an interesting development. Um, I do think it's probably time for Sunil Galati to, to move on. Of the candidates that I've seen put forward so far, the only one that stood out to me is Eric Winalda. Um, as someone that I know and and have spoken to a number of times, um, I think he he has a role to play in U.S. soccer at some stage. What that is, I'm not entirely sure yet. But yeah, I think once the rest of the candidates come out and the the, the field is narrowed down a bit, Cal then we Martino can start to. Well. Yeah, sorry, Carl Martino as well. I completely forgot about him. I think once once the um. Once the field becomes narrowed, then we can kind of drill down on on what everybody stands for and, and see what their vision is. Because I think that's the key is is that whoever comes in to replace Sunil has to have a very clear vision for for where the um, where the future lays with U.S. soccer. Finally, uh, John Shin writes in to say, "I just wanted to tell y'all that you were doing a swell job with the podcast. Couldn't think of a question." So, thanks, John. Very nice. Uh, thanks, that, John. That brings thanks, John. an end to the Q and A podcast, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, remember, do get your questions in on Twitter at the front three for next week's Q and A, and remember to leave us a review as well. Rate and review the front three on iTunes if you want to be in with a chance of being the whole of the week. Until Monday when we'll be back with, I guess we'll be reviewing some of the international fixtures. We've got the playoffs, of course, this weekend, the first legs, at least, I believe. Um, so that'll be interesting to uh, to discuss on Monday. Until then, Lawrence, where can people find you? 
you can go to Lost Cast. L O Z C A S T. Very good, Chris. Uh, at the front three. Selfless. Good. He is there. He's there. It is really <laughs> bloody good. Uh, Nico. They can find me preparing for my trip to, to London. Ah, very good. Yes. When is it that you're arriving? I depart on the 18th at night, and then I arrive in the morning on the 19th. Wow, you're preparing for the next seven days. You're packing or? I don't have any winter clothes at all in a climate where it is 85 degrees outside right now. So. Yeah, you'll, you'll need some. You'll definitely have to get some. It's getting chilly over. Uh, guys, you can follow me on Twitter, Adam Boltwood. Until Monday, have a bloody great weekend. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.